Well, I want to greet you all in Jesus' name this morning. I knew I'd probably be standing up and looking at a few empty pews up front. There's something a little sobering about that. It's a large part of us is missing 33 souls in El Salvador this morning. I trust they're uh, worshiping the same God this morning that we are. Look forward to having them all back. Thought about making an unusual request and having the last two pews move and fill in the front two pews and make it feel a little more full up front here, but that's probably out of order. I might get run out of town for something like that. But I'm just going to give the benefit of the doubt that the empty pews, uh, we still have this hunger and thirst for righteousness from from the back of the room. I looked on the brethren's side and realized there's a number of you that would be familiar with operating diesel equipment in cold weather. And I don't think I'd have any trouble getting a correct answer to the question, what do you expect from a piece of diesel equipment that's sat for two months when you go to start it on a cold, snowy morning? Sisters might think the same thing about a car. When you go to start it, you probably take something with you. Might be starting fluid, might be jumper cables. You really don't expect to just start a piece of equipment after two months of sitting. Well, it was two months ago that I had the last sermon in Ephesians. So we come to chapter six in the armor of God. You can turn there if you like. I'm a little suspicious this morning that if the congregation was a piece of diesel equipment, it might need jumper cables to get going this morning after two months. I'm well aware of the fact that Ephesians is a little more in my uh, everyday thinking that it might be in yours. I would like to read the uh, passage on the armor of God to put it back in our memory and then just review a little bit to kind of serve as jumper cables to get us going again before we get into the text for the day, which is a single verse in verse 15, speaking of having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Before we do that, why don't we read this passage? I'm going to ask you to stand as you're able for the reading of the word of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. 
I'm not sure, Chet, if you have control of this blast furnace behind me, but uh, I wouldn't miss it if it was turned off. <clears throat> Thank you. All right, well, you've been patiently with me low these last five years for upwards of 55 sermons from the book of Ephesians. I want to bless you for that. Trust that it hasn't been in vain. Several important truths ought to stand out to us after all of this work and all of this investment in this epistle. One of the primary truths that ought to be evident by now is the fact that we are a rich people as we are in Christ. We are impossibly rich. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, unsearchable riches are ours as we're in Christ. We're not only a rich people, we're a powerful people. I look out here and we folks all look pretty respectable, pretty fine and good this morning, but rich and powerful aren't the first things that would have popped into my mind, but there's no escaping that in the book of Ephesians. Those of you that are in Christ are unsearchably rich and unspeakably powerful. Powerful. Ephesians 1.19 To us who believe, we have exceeding greatness of power, even like unto God's resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, that sat Him at His own right hand, we are likewise raised from the dead and sitting together with Christ in those same heavenly places. Ephesians 1.19 and Ephesians 2.6 so we're rich and we're powerful. And here in the second half of the book of Ephesians, we get called to be stewards of that wealth and that power. And that is in the key verse for the whole book, the pivot verse for the book in Ephesians 4 and verse 1. We're told to use those riches and walk like rich people. The apostle says, that he beseeches us that we walk worthy. Rich people walk like rich people. They don't walk like paupers. We're called to walk rich because we are rich. We don't walk rich to be rich. We are rich. We're called to walk rich, walk worthy, walk in holiness, walk not like the other Gentiles, walk in the light. I don't know if we remember the simple definition of a $20 word, sanctification, is being what you already are. That is, we're made holy as we're in Christ, we're to be holy. That's sanctification. That's the effort of the Christian life, is becoming what God has made us when we first came into Christ. We are rich, we need to be rich. We are powerful, we need to be powerful. Sanctification, if you're taking notes, it's a very easy definition. It's becoming what you already are. We come now to chapter 6 and the passage on the armor of God, and we see at this shocking climax of the entire epistle the call to be what we already are. We are heirs to the exceeding greatness of God's power, the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him at God's right hand. That power is ours, and we're called to use it. We're called to take unto us the armor of God, to put on the armor of God, be what we already are. Live the power that God has purchased for us with his own son's blood. 
God says, here's the armor. Put it on. Take it under you. It's a formidable armor. Fitted and furnished by God. It's a spiritual armor for a spiritual battle. Second Corinthians 10 covered this verse some months ago. Though we walk after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. That would be a powerful verse for non-resistance. I don't know if you ever thought about it. We do not war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We are non-resistant after the flesh, but we are at war in the spirit. All of us that are in Christ are at war in the spirit. God has provided us with a needful armor. Our calling, what we're to use this armor for, is not to make the Christian life easy or more productive or more prosperous. We are to use the armor of God to survive. Spiritually, to stand. In the passage we read today in Ephesians 6, verse 11, the calling. Be what you are. Put on this armor. You've been made powerful. Be powerful. That, verse 11, that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, take the armor that you may be able to withstand. Going on in verse 13, having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand. Therefore, what's at stake here with the armor of God and whether we choose to be obedient and put it on or to neglect it? is our ability to stand against a vicious, deadly, relentless, deceptive onslaught from a demonic horde. That sounds overblown, like somebody making a lot about nothing, but that's what the Word of God teaches. All right. I don't know how that was for jumper cables or starting fluid, but I trust that some of you are back to where I am as we take a close look at verse 15 of chapter 6. If we back up to verse 14, the last two sermons were about having loins girt about with truth and the breastplate of righteousness. I don't know if you see a pattern going on here, but the battle belt of truth around our waist and the breastplate of righteousness Almost seems like it's building up to a crescendo here. We'll put on this incredible helmet of salvation. That's the way he's moving up the body. But here Paul stops and reverses his course. He's moving from the loins to the vitals to the feet of all things. Feet. Feet are kind of humble. Kind of lowly, kind of unpresentable. We don't make a show of displaying our feet. I would trust I could walk through the pews and inspect each of you and not see any feet that weren't suitably covered. I don't plan to do that, but I'm confident that I could and not be shocked with unclad feet. I've been 33 years married, known Rebecca for 36 years, and one of her guiding mottos in life is, is a very simple statement, and it is, Hope you have your pencils ready. You don't want to miss this. Feet are yucky. She's a very deep thinker, and 
You can tell it from this. I've been hearing this for 36 years. Feet are yucky. The practical application of that doctrine is keep your feet away from me. Don't touch me with your feet. Why? Feet are yucky. Oh, yeah, feet are yucky. Got it. Feet are practically disgraceful. They're very lowly. They're necessary, and we appreciate them. Wouldn't want to try to imagine life without them, but they are, after all, yucky. Turns out children's feet are not yucky, and my children are allowed to have their feet all over my wife, but my feet are to stay away. No physical contact, no threat of physical contact. If they get close to her, feet are yucky. <laughs> Keep your feet away. I just got out of the shower. Clean socks. Feet are yucky. All right, well, a soldier's feet may be lowly. They may be humble. They may even be yucky, but everything is riding on those feet. Without those feet functioning the way they need to function, the soldier is disabled. And in a battle, he's doomed. A disabled soldier is a dead soldier. I want to think about the importance of footwear in the military. I want to compare the footwear of two different armies. And I want you to think about what army you would like to be in and how much attention would you like to pay to your feet, outfitting your feet. Verse 15 commands that we would have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So let's keep that in mind. I want to talk about December of 1777. Revolutionary War had been raging for a year and a half. And George Washington took the Continental Army, numbering about 12,000 men, to Valley Forge. His idea was to lay siege to the British-occupied city of Philadelphia. In December of 1777, George Washington and the 12,000 men of the Continental Army built the seventh largest city in North America in a matter of weeks. They built over 2,000 huts and cabins to winter the army at Valley Forge. By the end of that winter of the 12,000 soldiers, 2,000 were dead. Not a single battle casualty. They died of starvation and exposure. The soldiers had frozen and starved. Visitors to Valley Forge were shocked to find that the hope of this new nation, barely two years old, was resting on a wretched barefoot army. Eyewitnesses describe entire regiments standing at their posts, half-naked, wrapped in tattered blankets, standing in the January freezing rain, with their hats not on their heads but under their feet to try to thaw their frostbitten bare feet. An army without shoes is a doomed army. In contrast, go back 17 centuries to the time of Paul writing the epistle to the Ephesians and consider the Roman Empire and their army. First century historian Josephus wrote some accounts of the Roman army and how they were outfitted. This is a paraphrase and it isn't all from him, but he wrote about the Roman army saying that the Romans gloried in being the best shod 
army on the planet. Are we okay with the word shod? It's kind of a King James word. It's in our text today, so I'm going to use it. They had good shoes. And they were proud of it. They understood the importance of that to an army. The Romans gloried in being the best shod army on planet Earth. They wore thick, sturdy, leather-soled sandals. And these sandals were tightly strapped up against their feet with long, heavy leather straps. These straps were braided and woven up their ankles and calves to protect their lower legs. Long, sharp, heavy hobnails were driven down through these stout leather soles and through creating footwear that not only protected the soldier's feet, but created an offensive weapon that could be used against an enemy, particularly a fallen enemy. You could kick, you could viciously slash, you could savagely stomp your opponent, and your feet became weapons themselves. Not to mention the traction that you gain from hobnails driven down through the bottom of your shoes. Traction is kind of important on a battlefield that in a matter of minutes turns muddy with red mud of human blood and gore, slippery, opening moments of a battle. If you don't have traction, you go down. If you go down, you die. Stand to live. If you fall, you die. This is the Roman army. Which army would you prefer to be a soldier in? Standing on your hat with frostbitten bare feet. Trust not. These, just kind of an aside here. Don't have time for this, but it's just really interesting to me. These Roman battle boots were called in Latin caligas, caligas, Roman battle boots. And the dreaded soldiers that wore them their outfits were called the Caligati. Caligati were the called the booted ones. They were booted because the people that they took on almost invariably were barefoot or lightly shod. The Caligati were feared for their boots. They were known, the Romans were, with their exceptional footwear to be able to scatter the field with thorns and sharpened sticks the original minefields to create a battlefield that the enemy could not function on because they were not properly shod. And that enhanced the Romans' advantage. The Caligati, the booted ones, were who a, fu a future Roman emperor at the time of Paul drilled with as a young boy. His father was emperor, and as a young boy, his father forced him to drill with adults in the Caligati. And he even outfitted this young boy who would be an emperor with his own pair of miniature boots. Caligas. Child-sized, pint-sized Caligas. This boy inherited a lifetime nickname that he despised. To call him when he was emperor by this nickname was instant death. It was the death penalty. This name was Caligula. The name meant little boots. And he was mocked for having worn little boots as a child, training with the Caligati. This was the Roman army. This is how they were outfitted. And something as humble as boots, they turned to their advantage and used as a source of power and also as a weapon. 
So this is the context. This is what Paul's thinking about. We don't think about these things. Our military today rides around in tanks, and I imagine they were, I don't know what, Nikes probably. Um, they don't need battle boots. The Roman soldiers needed battle boots. Paul says that we, in our Christian warfare, need battle boots. You need to, four things. Stand, stand therefore, having your feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace. I want to just quickly hit those four topics. Probably spend most of my time on the fourth one, the gospel of peace. We spoke already of standing. Standing is not a posture. It's not an alternative to sitting. It's not an alternative to laying down. Standing is speaking of a, a military, holding a military position, holding essential ground. You stand your ground. When you stand against Satan, you're holding critical ground. We spoke about what was riding on an army's footwear. So we stand, therefore, having our feet shod. We understand the importance of not being a pathetic, barefoot army. We go on to this term preparation in verse 15. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is a little bit of a confusing word, and I think it's because it isn't the best word to use here. If we go to Romans 10, why don't we just do that? Hold on to Ephesians 6. I'd like to come right back to it. But look at Romans 10. Thinking about preparation of the gospel of peace in Romans 10, we should take the time to read it, but Maybe you'll take my word for it. This is a passage on evangelism. This is a passage on taking the good news to the world. To get down to verse 14 and 15, we read these familiar verses. Romans 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Well, we see here the connection of feet and the gospel of peace, and we think evangelism right away. And we go back to verse 15 of Ephesians 6, and we see feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we think, well, here's our call to go and preach the gospel. Use your feet to get somewhere. You've got good news. Walk with your feet and walk somewhere and take the message. But we look at the context here, and we're not in Romans 10. And we're not in an evangelistic passage. We're in a battle passage. And we're being told what we need to survive a spiritual onslaught. So what's going on here is not discussing preaching the word. Not that it's not important. It's just not what's being discussed here. Take unto you, I'm sorry, verse 15. Stand, therefore, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we need to think about this preparation. If it's not speaking of traveling and preaching as a defense against the attacks of the spirit world against a Christian, what is it talking about? I think that if you uh, don't consider it defacing, if you were to change the word preparation in your Bible to foundation, 
I think you would do yourself a favor. This word can be translated foundation. There's no, no damage here, no funny business in the text. Kenneth West translates this verse this way. Stand, therefore, having sandaled your feet with the firm foundation of the good news of peace. Sandal your feet with the firm foundation of the good news of peace. Another uh, kind of a literal translator, Karl Barth, says it this way. Stand, therefore, steadfast, because the gospel of peace is strapped under your feet. I think that's helpful. I think we lose the distraction of we need to get across the world with the gospel. We need to use our beautiful feet and take our good news to the ends of the earth. We do need to do that, but not here, not in a battle passage. Stand steadfast, solid, safe, firm foundation because the gospel of peace is strapped under your feet. We're not used to the gospel message being a defensive weapon. We're used to it being a message. It's good news. But Paul is here telling us, you need it to defend yourself. You need the gospel of peace strapped under your feet to stand and survive. It's interesting to think of shoes and feet and the gospel of peace as a foundation. If you've done any building, you know that underneath a foundation goes what? A footer. Why is it a footer? The foot is the, under the foundation. The foot is what connects you to what you stand on. Feet as a foundation. I don't know how many of you could tell me your life verse. I was asked one time, what's your life verse? And I was embarrassed. I thought maybe I questioned my salvation. I don't think I have a life verse. But I used to think it's a little corny. I don't want to offend anybody that has a life verse. Because I actually have one now. If you ask me, I'll share it with you. But not up here. Um, Menno Simons had a life verse. Probably some of you would know it. Whenever he wrote a letter or an article or a paper or a book, always, invariably, on the first page before he wrote anything else, he wrote his life verse. 1 Corinthians 3.11. Other foundation, foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Menno Simons understood that everything started with Christ. Christ was the footer and everything built up from that. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I'm going to add to that and his gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is a firm foundation. Is the gospel of peace misnamed? Are you comfortable with the term gospel of peace? Well, you have to be. It's in scripture. But I'm just, just asking you to think for a minute. The gospel of peace. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 12. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. Well, what should be the answer to that? Yeah, of course, prince of peace. Of course, Jesus came to give peace on earth. What does he say? I tell you, nay, but rather division. Suppose ye I come to give peace on earth. I tell you, nay, but rather division. Well, we know Jesus as prince of peace. How about as prince of division? Doesn't sound so nice. Is Jesus the prince of peace or the prince of division? How would you answer that on a test? 
I think the answer is yes. He says he came to bring division. He goes on to say, even within your most loved ones, within your family, Christ, Prince of Peace and Prince of Division. Christ brings not peace, but division and enmity and separation from God for anyone that rejects his gracious offer. What is his gracious offer? Full pardon, undeserved amnesty to wretched enemy traitors that deserve nothing but eternal death and torment. Christ brings no peace, but only division to anyone who rejects his gospel of peace. Paul speaks of these enemies of God, these majority of the human race that know Christ, not as the Prince of Peace, but the Prince of Separation in Romans 3. Let's turn there for a moment. Romans 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. These are the people, and the result of rejecting Christ's offer of the gospel of peace. Reject that offer, and you, everyone has a relationship with Jesus. We sometimes describe the converted as, well, I came to have a relationship with Jesus. Well, everyone has a relationship with Jesus. You either relate to him as the prince of peace or the prince of separation. And this passage ends describing these people that have encountered the resurrected Christ and his gospel and rejected it and said of them, the way of peace, verse 17, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So how does division become peace? We flip over to Romans 5 and verse 1. We see that faith is the key that unlocks the door from separation to peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of peace. Ephesians 2.14, we already studied this passage. Christ is our peace. Christ doesn't bring peace. He is peace. Any peace we have is through Christ. Because of Christ, Christ is our peace. First Peter, the epistle ends with this prayer. For believers, peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. The gospel of peace. 
goes without saying that when you enter into peace with God, you create for yourself an ugly enemy in the person of Satan. That is, the enemy of your friend is your enemy. When you become a friend of God, you inherit a powerful enemy in Satan. So, as Christians, we would say we have peace. And that is very true, but we are not at peace. We have a powerful ally in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have a powerful enemy in Satan, who is master of a horde of demons. I was asked last sermon where I come up with the 100 million number for angels, um, where it says in Revelation 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million, and thousands of thousands. Uh, Yeah, I don't mean to make too much of that number, but if our Old Testament understanding of demonology is correct, and a third of the angels followed Satan and were banished from heaven, a third of 10,000 times 10,000 is 30 million demons. And we have no knowledge that demons die or that they reproduce. So that number is fairly stable. And that would say that when you came to know Christ, you inherited not only Satan, but 30 million demons as your sworn enemies. Do you believe that you are involved in mortal combat with the spirit world? More than believe it, do you perceive it? I'll say whether you believe it or perceive it, it's a reality unless you want to reject the teaching here of Scripture. So we have peace in Christ, but we are not at peace. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Probably wouldn't surprise you if I made the statement that Satan hates the gospel of peace. I don't think that's a shocking statement. The gospel of peace is not good news if you're Satan. It's bad news. He's lost a follower. He's lost a servant. He's lost a soldier. When you betray him and go over to the other side, when you jump the fence from the forces of darkness to the forces of light, He hates the gospel of peace. Did you ever think about the fact that he's also deathly afraid of it? Hating it is one thing. Satan also fears the gospel of peace. Why? What does the gospel of peace hold against Satan? I want to suggest this morning that what Satan fears about the gospel of peace is that it leaves us with nothing to fear from him. All he has over us is fear. The gospel of peace delivers us from fear. Have you ever read an article about the boy soldiers in Africa? Seems like such a tragic continent. The tribal warfare and the uh, warlords. And all the men have died. They've been fighting for decades and decades. And all the men of fighting age are dead. So they're having to enlist boys and girls, children. 8, 10, 
12 years old. It's really tough to make a ferocious warrior out of a nine-year-old boy. Do you know how they do it? They hand him an automatic rifle that's as tall as he is, and they hand him a bottle of pills, and the pills are a narcotic. And the narcotic give the illusion to this child warrior that he's invincible. He's bulletproof. And as ludicrous as that sounds, if a horde of people come storming across a battlefield, even nine-year-olds that think they're invincible and bulletproof and have some powerful weapons, they can do a lot of damage. And people are afraid of these child warriors because they're deceived into thinking that they're invincible. The gospel of peace is similar to this. It's not a deception and it's not a narcotic, but it does give us a sense of being bulletproof before Satan. He has nothing over us. We are invincible before Satan as we are in Christ and have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. We have peace with God. We have nothing to fear from Satan. Peace with God is the ultimate source the ultimate foundation of our power. The Holy Spirit commands us to put it on as though it were battle boots. Shoe your feet with the foundation of the gospel of peace. It's not a narcotic. It's not a deception. But it is a powerful attitude to have that you have nothing to fear. You cannot be hurt. Romans 8 if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We are invincible if we are in Christ. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Matthew 10. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. What does Satan have on us? He has no power over our soul. Think about this statement. Fearless men are formidable, ferocious fighters. That's a lot of F's. Fearless men are formidable, ferocious fighters. Have you put on the gospel of peace with God? Has it made you ferocious and formidable? Turn to John 18. I want to think about how it transforms our life if we are bulletproof in the spirit world. If we are invincible in the spirit world, if we have our feet shod with the firm foundation of the gospel of peace, God is our friend, Christ is with us, we are rich and powerful, how does that affect how we relate to the spirit world? I want to think about that. In John 18, I want to read the first 10 verses. Just take the time to do that. So Jesus is in the garden and about to be arrested and betrayed by the mob that Judas is leading. When Jesus had spoken these words, 
he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, which was a, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this was a mob. They were angry, they were fierce, they were determined, and they were coming for Jesus. Verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. He spoke to the mob and he said, who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Now, verse 6 is kind of a shocking verse. I don't know how you think about this verse. I have trouble picturing this, but it's kind of amazing. The way John describes it, I assume it happened physically exactly as he describes it here. As soon as Jesus said unto them, I am, he is an insertion here, it's not necessary. I am the Hebrew name for God Almighty. As soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. You know, these men didn't trip over a root or a rock in their surprise. I picture the entire mob with their weapons and lanterns and torches shot like out of a slingshot, backwards, roughly hitting the ground, probably not senseless. The entire mob. Jesus is surveying this mob on their back, knocked senseless, and asked them again, who did you say you're looking for? I would have expected the mob to kind of slink off in fear, but somehow they gathered their senses again and said again, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am. This apparently didn't knock them to the ground again. I've told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake. Of them which thou givest me, I have lost none. Now, verse 10 is what I wanted to notice here. Thinking about the ferocious fighter that you are when you have peace with God, when you have the confidence that Christ is your friend and God is your father, and you have unsearchable riches of grace, and you are mighty because of being in Christ, Here's Simon Peter. He draws his sword and he cut off the high priest's servant's ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now I want to stop there and ask you, did he aim for that ear? I wouldn't. I would probably go for the center of the skull. I think that's what Peter aimed for. Think about what Peter was doing here. Here's an armed mob with the authority of the chief priests who have authority over the nation of Israel, who are under the authority of the Roman Empire. Peter was single-handedly, with a sword, ready to take on the Roman Empire and their authority and their armies and their weapons. Why was he willing to do that? Now, I'm not making excuse here. Jesus reprimanded him, and Peter didn't understand that uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. If you'll set all that aside, I just want you to think of a ferocious, fearless fighter, confident that right at his shoulder is the man that just drove a mob 
backwards onto their backs with the power of his name, I am. Confident in that, Peter draws his sword and sets out for the top of Malchus's head. He was invincible because he was with Jesus. Or should I say Jesus was with him? He saw the power of Jesus with his own eyes, and he was fearless. I think this is a picture of what the gospel of peace does to outfit us for spiritual warfare. So how do we think about these battle boots, these kaligos, Roman battle boots that represent the gospel of peace that everything in our Christian life stands on? They're not flip-flops, okay? They're not from the dollar store. They're not something you take along. You go barefoot to the beach and you're walking across the blacktop and ouch, 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 blacktop's hot, it's a sunny day. Good thing I got these flip-flops. Let me throw them down and uh, better. Use them while I need them, take them back off. So fun to go barefoot. That isn't the picture here. The picture is this relentless battle and these shoes are what stand between you and going down in front of your spiritual enemy. These shoes are your life. The call is to take unto you the confidence and ferocity and the fearlessness that comes with the gospel of peace in your possession. You will take unto you the shoes of the gospel of peace as your foundation or you will fall. This is what uh, what it says in Ephesians 6 where we read that we have the opportunity to stand. You may stand if you take unto you the armor of God. John Newton wrote a hymn. I considered bringing the music along to sing it. I don't think we know it. I feel bad if we do. It's not in our book. But it reads this way, speaking of the confidence that we have when we're with Christ, the gospel of peace, making us fearless. It reads this way. Rejoice, believer, in the Lord, who makes your cause his own. The hope that's built upon his word can never be o'erthrown. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint, or fainting shall not die. Jesus, the strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though sometimes unperceived by sense, faith sees him always near, a guide, a glory, a defense. Then what have you to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. You don't need to turn there. I'd like to close with a short psalm, Psalm 3. I want to consider how precious the gospel of peace is to us and have we 
allowed it to make us fearless in the spiritual warfare that surround us. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Stand therefore, having your feet shod with the firm foundation, the gospel of peace. Let's kneel for prayer.